Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace. I'm Carrie Lee, Chair of the Department of National Security and Strategy and Director of the Civil Military Relations Center here at the U.S. Army War College. I'm your host for our series this fall that focuses on today's debates and discussions in civil military relations. Civil military relations is usually thought of as the relationship between political elites and their military advisors, or the relationship between the military and society. However, a less appreciated facet of civil military relations deals with the relationship between the society and the government over decisions about how to use the military, like the decision to go to war. Today, we are engaged in serious policy discussions about how and when the military should be used across the world, from military aid to Ukraine and Israel, to a potential conflict over Taiwan, to the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan. Indeed, decisions about the use of the military are some of the most consequential that a president can make. It involves potentially sacrificing the lives of citizens, significant financial investments in equipment, training, and personnel, and, of course, political retribution if things go poorly. In particular in the United States, fear of casualties has been viewed as central to U.S. military strategy. Saddam Hussein famously thought that the American invasion of Iraq would crumble in the face of first casualties, while scholars have theorized that the American military invests so many resources in technology in order to offset the human cost of war. Others, however, have argued that this kind of casualty aversion and the growing distance between American society and its military actually frees presidents to use force in other ways through drones, air power, and special operations. Where does the truth lie? How much does public opinion really matter when making foreign policy? And whose opinion matters? Is the U.S. truly casualty-phobic? And how do attitudes about the use of force shape foreign policy decision-making? Here to help us think through these questions is Dr. Max Margulies. Dr. Margulies is the Director of Research and an Assistant Professor at the Modern War Institute at West Point. He also serves as the Course Director for the Thesis Program in West Point's Defense and Strategic Studies Program. Prior to joining the Modern War Institute, he was a faculty member in West Point's Department of Social Sciences, where he taught classes on international affairs and served as Executive Director of the Rupert A. Johnson Grand Strategy Program. In addition to his primary interests in military personnel politics, innovation, and effectiveness, he also studies and writes broadly on civil military relations, strategy, and conflict. He holds a PhD in political science from the University of Pennsylvania, an MA in political science from Columbia University, and a BA in political science from McGill University. Dr. Margulies, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. 
So I want to start us off really broad um, because there's a lot of scholars in the literature that say like public opinion doesn't matter, um, that presidents have a lot of discretion, especially in foreign policy, to do whatever they want. Uh, and they only come up for a reelection every four years. And even then, the, the public only votes on the economy. So like, why do we care about public opinion when it comes to foreign policy? So, you know, I do agree that presidents have a lot of discretion and that elites, um, you know, politicians, influencers, media can shape public opinion. But I still think that public opinion matters uh, both normatively and practically. So, um, you know, from a normative perspective, this is a great way to or it's an important way and really the only way to have a democratic effect on our foreign policy. I think that this happens um through a number of mechanisms, not just through presidential elections every year. Another way that I think it might matter uh, might be through a logic very similar to deterrence, right? Presidents care about uh, being punished by the population. And even if we think that there might be um, not as much evidence for the public holding presidents accountable on foreign policy, um, in practice, we really only need presidents only need to have a, a slight or reasonable fear that they're going to be held accountable to take the public's opinions into account. So presidents are essentially being strategic actors that they are. I guess we shouldn't be surprised. Politicians are politicians and presidents are extraordinarily savvy politicians. So we probably shouldn't be surprised that they're already sort of navigating the waters quite well. And we shouldn't expect major public blowback every time they make a decision. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. So I want to ask, you know, you mentioned Congress. And uh, one of the things that Congress does is they exercise power of the purse. Mm -hmm. This is maybe one reason why presidents care about midterm elections, right? Um, about control of Congress. And we've seen a lot of debate right now over how much funding to provide for Ukraine in the form of military aid with you know, and now also over military aid for Israel uh, with the the ongoing war in Gaza. Is this an example of how public opinion, like are are the Republicans and Democrats in Congress who are maybe less excited about military aid to Ukraine, is this an example of them following their constituents and public opinion sort of exerting itself on foreign aid? Or is this is something different going on here? So, you know, I have to admit, I haven't followed the public debates about uh, waxing and waning support for, for Ukraine <laughs> aid too closely. But I have been thinking about this question about what is the role of public opinion in um, creating support for these kinds of policies. And I do wonder if there if it's worth breaking up the role of public opinion into kind of the initial decision and then to provide aid or not, and then a kind of how much does it matter for continuity? Like hmm. once the aid starts, I'm a big believer in path dependence, okay. which means, right, the um, once you get started on something, it's hard to change course. And so I do wonder whether public opinion might have a greater role when new policies or new opportunities or challenges are emerging, and it might wane down the road unless there's major events to change the circumstances. Okay, that's interesting. And so it explains a lot of uh, continued 
public support or at least almost apathy, right, towards ongoing military operations. And I think Afghanistan might be a good example of this. Yeah, I I think so. <laughs> so back to kind of the apathetic public, though. Um, most people don't follow the news and uh, especially not international news. This has very little bearing on the lives of Americans. They're kind of generally focused on pocketbook issues and you know, if you believe the Clinton campaign in 1992, right, it's the economy stupid. Um, do pe- does the public really pay attention to foreign policy? Is this something that uh, that they vote on? I think that they might pay attention more than we think. But even if they don't pay that much attention or aren't that well informed, I I don't think you need to pay a lot of attention to foreign policy for it to have an effect on public opinion. I think we are so, we receive so many cues from media, from our environment, uh, from just things that we pick up in everyday life that I think that the public forms opinions largely on impressions. And you don't need to have very consciously paid attention to or thought about an issue for, for it to cause you to develop some sort of feeling or valence orientation toward it. Now, cues, like the public picks up cues. Cues from who? From all over, from, right, whatever news they're watching, from the social media feeds that they they pay attention to and the influencers that might be mentioning it uh, in passing, even if they're not paying attention that much or or seeking out... uh, sources of information that directly talk about foreign policy, you now have kind of pop culture and uh, film and TV media, which might be portraying the military or certain issues, foreign policy issues in a certain light, whether or not it's factual. Um, I think uh, Ed Salo, uh, who I think recently published with War Room and just published uh, an article for the Modern War Institute, had a good piece on this about how the public has formed opinions about special operations and the role of, of special operations forces in, in foreign policy. Uh, I think that just the the way – I think that is in large part a result of the way that film has portrayed the military over time. You mentioned that film plays a really important part in shaping public attitudes and Ed Salo's piece about special operations community in particular. How might this affect the public's willingness to, say, use special operations abroad or support the use of force uh, kind of more broadly across the across the globe? Great question. So I will be talking about this a little bit in my presentation later today. Uh, I have some ongoing work with uh, a colleague and friend, Keith Carter, at the uh, U.S. Naval War College's distance education program on this. Um, I think there's a couple ways that it might. You know, one of the big, um, one of the big ideas in the scholarly community is that how, is about how close the public is to the uh, to soldiers, to people that are going on operations, um, to people that are actually putting their lives at risk, because so, that might have some sort of relationship to how much the public personally pays the cost of war if they know more people that are out there risking their lives. Uh, so special operations might fit in that way through just the fact that it is often more difficult to observe, or it might also be a, uh, a smaller, more insular community that fewer people are directly related to. Um, what 
one thing that I think might matter too is just this idea that special operations forces are really portrayed as combat heroes, very Rambo-like, right? They are, they want to go in there. They are elite. They are selecting into volunteering for these dangerous missions and the public is more okay if that's the kind of person that they know is doing it. So that's really interesting. Um, you know, we did a podcast earlier this year with Peter Fever on his book on trust in the military, and he suggests and he finds in his book, right, that uh, public trust in the military is high in large part because uh, it's performance-based, the kind of perception of competence of the military. Um, but you're also saying that willingness to use force might be a function of, well, they're willing and eager to get into the fight, right? And that's how we perceive special operators as opposed to your average G.I. Joe. Um, is that kind of what you're saying? That this idea that, you know, the all-volunteer force, they volunteered for it, they're eager to get into the fight, makes the public much more willing to then deploy these folks? Absolutely. And I think performance does matter, too. But from the research I've done, I think there's a lot of different factors that shape both public opinion at any given uh, – public support for the military at any point in time, as well as the trends in confidence and trust for the military. And just to, to harp on this special operations versus you know average American GI, I'm not sure how much the public is really able to distinguish between the two because so much of what they're presented in – Kind of the cultural sphere. I've said film a lot, but also video games, advertisements, the way that veteran politicians, politicians who are veterans portray themselves, uh, I think really presents the entire American army as a volunteer force. Right. Everybody was a SEAL. Everybody was a Ranger. Everybody is a badass. Okay. Um, so what other types of things might shape whether a person is willing to support the use of force abroad. Like, who is the average person who, when presented with an operation, says, yes, that sounds like a great idea? Okay, so we've talked about performance, and we've talked about uh, ideas of what kind of mission is appropriate. I think that, um, well, we talked about what kind of soldier is appropriate, but I think also the kind of mission might matter who it's up against, um, right, right, who is the adversary. Uh, I think the public generally gets these kind of senses of, right, whether it's a kind of short-term counter-terrorist mission or a longer-term um, supporting an ally, long-term uh, invasion or forced deployment for something that has less immediate uh, effect to national security. I think all that matters. I've been thinking lately about just kind of the role of emotion and revenge, especially with all the news about what's going on in, in Israel and Gaza. So mm -hmm. uh, I don't have any super informed thoughts on that, but I think that there's, there's a lot of factors that go into support for, uh, for using force, and they're not all strictly rational or strategic. Sure. When you're talking about the length of an operation, just to clarify, public is more willing to support short operations or more interested in long, kind of long-term things? I have intuitions about this, but I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, I think my intuition would be short. And I know some of the research I've done is tried to focus more on that kind of, um, that kind of mission. But I think this is, again, where things get complicated, because if the public thinks that they can deploy the force over a long term for a mission that 
will give them uh, security dividends, and they think they can do so without paying a much of a cost in blood or treasure. I think that they're often more tolerant of that than we think. I think, again, we see that. We saw that in the long support for Afghanistan. This brings me to a kind of hobby horse of mine, which is casualty sensitivity. And this idea that Americans are profoundly casualty sensitive and even casualty phobic, that the moment uh, the bodies start coming in and we see the images of flags draped on caskets coming in at uh, Dover Air Base, uh, also known as the Dover effect, that public support for war, public support for military operations will just plummet. And I... Uh, and, you know, support will evaporate and the president will be forced to withdraw, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is this a real phenomenon? I don't think it's as severe as we might think. I haven't done a ton of research into casualty sensitivity, but I am a little familiar with some of the debates in the literature, and I would really love to learn more about it. So I'm excited to talk to you more about casualty sensitivity. You know, I think that, again, it's going to interact with what is the public's overall sense of how this use of force is going and how important it is. Um, I think it also is important to ask whose support is declining as a result and how long. So I'm a little familiar with some debates in the literature on casualty sensitivity about whether it's uh, a national effect or local to the the area that is um, where the casualties are coming from, whether it's a long-term or short-term effect. I think those are all really important questions that I don't know the answer to. I'd, be, I'd love to know if what, what the research says. Well, so one of the things that you have um, done some work on is the kind of connection between the public and the military and how connect, you know, the civil military yeah. gap um, and how that may play into kind of the use of force. The way that I have thought about casualties historically is, um, you know, there's a couple of different mechanisms there that casualty sensitivity from one may stem from hey, I know somebody who died or I know somebody in my community who was you know, severely injured and I'm not so sure that this is a good idea anymore. Um, there's also kind of other nebulous effects, right? Like of kind of pure rational cost benefit, like, oh, I just don't think that this is worth it anymore because we've crossed 2,000 killed in action type of thing. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, with the civil military gap, if people feel less removed from the military, and if fewer people have contact with veterans or other folks who may be kind of directly affected by war, um, does this increase one's willingness to sort of do military adventurism, to be willing to deploy forces abroad if you don't think that it's going to affect you as much? So interestingly, I have not found really any evidence that people that are further removed from conflict have more or have more hawkish uh, views. What I found in in my research is that, uh, and we I present some of this in a recent article with Jess Blankshane at Daedalus. Most of the, that research looks at the all volunteer force period, where this might make a little bit more sense. People are selecting into the military. They those are the kinds of people that are more closely connected to the military and their families, they might be selecting in because they have this kind of higher 
normative belief in what the country is fighting for, protecting national security. They also have more support for more, I don't want to say aggressive, but often escalatory or pro-defense, more military-esque policies or solutions. Um, I've also done some research for that paper that looked at attitudes from draft-eligible men during the Vietnam War, and it turns out that they were actually more in favor of escalating the war than the rest of the population. So overall, I am often very skeptical of the idea that personal cost has a big effect on foreign policy. I think that there's some other factor at play. So speaking of Jess Blankshane, you and uh, Dr. Blankshane also wrote a piece a couple of years ago talking about trust in the military. So let's pivot a little bit and talk about that. Um, you guys argued in the New York Times that too much trust in the military can actually be a bad thing. Um, you know, here at the Army War College, we love it when we when the public trusts us. So talk to me a little bit about why you guys make this argument and uh, why you think that kind of too much trust can be actually um, kind of lead to perverse consequences. For me, it really all comes down to deference in the military. I think the military is really good at a lot of things, but they're they don't know everything. They are not the experts in uh, a lot of political decisions, and nor should they be. Those are those should be decisions that are informed through more democratic processes. The military is not an organization that has any direct accountability to the public. All of its accountability is through elected officials. Um, and so I get concerned when people start to just rely on what the what members of the military think is the right thing to do. Um, and I think that is more likely to happen when we have very high levels of trust in the military. And of course, there's uh, kind of an ongoing question in the scholarly literature that hasn't been well resolved about, well, are we talking about trust? Are we talking about confidence? Does this mean confidence in their ability to win a war, confidence in their military to, in their ability to behave appropriately. So I think there's all sorts of questions there to still untangle about what we mean by trust. But ultimately, my concern is when there is high trust, the public is more likely to let somebody else make the decision and that somebody else is the military who aren't elected and aren't necessarily the appropriate or best suited actors to be making those kinds of political decisions. So what kind of oversight are we talking about? Because right now, I think there's a lot of people who would argue that the oversight that Congress is exerting on the military is um, not in the best faith. And so what kind of oversight is kind of healthy oversight uh, when we're talking about kind of healthy, what is healthy skepticism of the military look like? I think healthy skepticism of the military would be realizing what the military has expertise in, looking to generals for advice about strategy, uh, very questions about how to conduct conflicts, questions about military readiness to an extent. Gen Z 
according to most public opinion polls, has less trust in the military today than any previous generation. Uh, when we look at you know these these graphs, I'm always struck by um, you know it's almost a it's monotonically declining, right? Baby boomers are have sky high confidence in the military. Gen X is like, yeah, we're not sure, but you know. We, we think they're pretty good. Millennials are like, man, I'm pretty skeptical. And Gen Z says, like, what is this organization? Uh, does that mean that they're less likely to support the use of force? Is that going to translate into some of their foreign policy attitudes and sort of willingness to be skeptical about the use of the military at all in foreign policy? I would certainly think so, at least for now. right? I think that the research that I've done seems to show that Yes, lower support for the military or lower trust, lower confidence, whatever we want to call it. And it really, from what I've seen, kind of does hold true across those measures of whether you're talking trust, confidence, warm and fuzzy feelings, um, right? The lower you are on all those, the less likely you are to support using, the, using military force. But I'm also, I don't want to say skeptical, but I think we should, we might be making too many inferences about Gen Z too early on in their developmental period. I think that's a really interesting point. They they must be the most oversurveyed generation in American <laughs> history. Yeah, and I think that you know, it's there's a bunch of stuff going on and I've really spent a lot of time trying to think about um generational attitudes and how generational attitudes change. And I do present, uh, Jess and I present some of it in the article. You know, I think in practice, people do tend to increase their trust in the military as they get older. Uh, looking at other generations, you do kind of see a, a general upward trend for most of them. But you also have, like we were talking about earlier, these performance elements, these other things in the zeitgeist about the military's role in society and politics that are all shaping everybody at the same time. So I think really you're seeing a lot of Gen Z might be lower than most right now, but I think you are still seeing a general decline amongst all generations. The uh, From what I've seen, generations tend to trend together. Now, that's a good point, um, because I don't know that anybody in the 1960s would have predicted that the baby boomers would be the most supportive of the military. Exactly. So, you know, can we expect then a similar trajectory for, for Gen Z? I would certainly expect their support to increase over time. Now, how long that takes, um, how long it lasts, what the ebbs and flows are, how steep it is, I, I think we're going to have to wait and see how a lot of things develop more nationally and internationally about um, how the military is being used and should be used. One of the big formative events for Gen Z, and to be honest, for millennials like me, uh, was the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And, you know, 20 years of war and having a military deployed overseas shapes your perception of what it means to be at war and peace, of what it means to have a military, all of this. How do you think that that's affected kind of young generations and emerging generations' view of the military and even the utility of the use of force? I think it's absolutely affecting their thoughts on the utility of the use of force. Um, I think it it's absolutely having a big effect on 
that generation and how they're thinking about the military. I mean, it's really the only evidence they have to go on to evaluate all the things we talked about, performance, appropriateness, um, how force is being used, right? They're, they see a war, um, and this isn't necessarily their own evaluation. This is how right, elites are talking about the war is 20 years, not a lot to show for it except for lives lost and money spent and depending on where you're looking or your views, influence lost. Uh, so of course they're going to use that information to develop consciously or unconsciously this idea that you know maybe the military isn't something that can solve problems um, or isn't worth me thinking about as much. Now, how long that lasts into the future, again, I mean, the... I think the public often has a short memory, right? Or, or there's probably a better way to put that, right? The, um, I think the public is understandably going to be influenced more by recent events than by events that were further in the past. I wouldn't be surprised if military force in Ukraine ends up having uh, showing great success uh, against Russia, given the amount of support for Ukraine among the public right now, that might become the new event that shapes how they feel about the use of force. I want to come back to a discussion about the information environment since we're talking about Gen Z. And when you and I get our, I assume, uh, when you and I are consuming our news, I get mine from, you know, online newspapers. And occasionally, if I can stand to watch cable news, I'll, you know, get it from my cable news uh, television source of choice. This is not the way that Gen Z, for the most part, consumes information, though. It is much more fragmented and sort of online. So how is that influencing the way that they are perceiving major national events like the withdrawal from Afghanistan or the war in Ukraine or kind of big international news events. Is that having a different effect on how they're kind of processing what's going on in the world and what the the use of the military is? You know, I I don't know. I've, this is something I've been trying to think about and something I, I really want to think about over my day here because – Right. We do have data that shows that Gen Z is much more likely to get their news about probably from everywhere, but specifically military foreign policy from social media, from influencers. I don't know if that really – I wonder how different that is from the broader media environment that older generations consume where we are also seeing a lot of self-selection into information sources that – confirm our pre-existing preferences or ideas about things, right? If you're conservative, you're going to watch Fox News. If you're progressive, you're going to watch MSNBC. Um, So I think we already have, you know, we already have this silo, right? Same for print media. You got New York Times, you got Wall Street Journals, you got things further on, uh, further on the extremes. So uh, yeah, I just, I don't know how much Social media is really adding a different dimension there, but I'd like to find out. This about ends our time here, but if you would like to know more about the U.S. Army War College's Civil Military Relations Center and our programming, you can find us at cmrc.armywarcollege.edu.
I also want to thank you, Dr. Margulies, for your time and insights into what is surely an interesting period in American civil-military relations. And thanks to all of you for listening into our series on modern civil-military relations. If you liked what you heard, please take a moment and subscribe to A Better Peace so that you don't have to miss an episode, and then rate the podcast on your podcatcher of choice so that we can grow our community. So until next time, from the War Room, I'm Carrie Lee. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.